Christ our hope. And uh, lest I forget, I want to pass along greetings from Pastor Tony Phelps. Tony and I uh, stay in touch online, and uh, I've long admired him, and we've been friends. And uh, So anyway, he gives his greetings. I'm sure many of you know uh, Pastor Tony. Uh, <clears throat> my passage this morning is um, first uh, is Philippians chapter 1. I almost said first Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 8. But I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as well. Um, just make a few brief comments about those verses. And um, so I'll read the text, pray, and then preach. So hear God's word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Please let us pray. We thank you for your inspired, infallible word, which always leads us in paths of righteousness and to salvation in Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that your blessed Holy Spirit would now illuminate uh, the sacred page to our hearts Um, Make us receptive. Help me to speak clearly for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My my focus will be on verses uh, 3 through 8, but I I don't want to pass by verses 1 and 2. I've actually preached a whole sermon just on verses 1 and 2. But I just want you to be reminded as we approach our text some wonderful things about Christians. Uh, First of all, Christians are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just apostles, not just Paul and Timothy. They are bondservants. That is to say, we are bought with a price. We are bought with a costly price, and therefore we're to glorify God in our bodies. Um, In the second place, Christians are saints. And that doesn't mean in in some superstitious way, specially holy. No, it means that we are set apart. Uh, by God, uh, for relationship with him, and are holy in that sense, and then progressively being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In the third place, Christians are in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of our salvation. We are united to him personally and vitally by faith in the fulfillment of an eternal plan. How wonderful is that? Um, Christians are in Philippi. Now, of course, we're not in Philippi, but I think the significance of that is that every portion of God's kingdom has a local expression. It's always local. You know, they say politics is always local. Well, the kingdom is always local as well. Uh, You are here, this people, in this place, in this region, and that's your primary field of ministry. And uh, we should appreciate that and pray often for our local area and our local region. Notice also that Christians are in the church. Um, with the, the, he says they are with the bishops and deacons. And uh, no such thing as an independent free agent Christian. 
Uh, in the New Testament, Christians are always in the church. Sometimes people have asked me, oh, do I really have to join a church to be a Christian? Show me one place in Scripture where a Christian is not in the church, is not in the people of God. Um, and I think that's so precious. And then, and then finally, uh, just such a wonderful thing here, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not simply a greeting card type of statement. If you're a believer, if you've been drawn to Christ, do you realize that is God's attitude towards you? That is his heart towards you. No wonder that's a, it's a tradition for pastors to begin, or an elder to begin, the call to worship by, by greeting the people with these words, grace to you and peace. We want you to know that's how God thinks of you. If you're a believer in Christ, he's not angry with you. You're not under his wrath. He desires your good. He desires your blessing. Sometimes that's so wonderful, I think it's even hard for us to believe sometimes. But that's it. That's God's heart. And as we come to read and study his word and hear a sermon, may we keep that in mind. Uh, Our God smiles upon us in Christ. Grace and peace to you, he says. In our text, then, to come to our passage proper, um, Paul is, is greatly rejoicing. He, he, says, he says, I can't think of you Philippians without rejoicing. How about that? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. That phrase is, uh, you all, is in here several times. You think Paul was a southern writer. Um, it's just a good, a good phrase, though. It brings out the plural of whom it is he's speaking to. Why is Paul so deeply moved? Why does he express such gratitude and love, and I must use the word warmth, toward these Philippians? In the context of Philippians, we won't take a lot of time on this, a brother named Epaphroditus has arrived from Philippi to visit Paul in his imprisonment. Uh, Most scholars and the tradition, and I see no reason to dispute it, is that Paul was in Rome at this time, imprisoned. And uh, from Philippi then, uh, the, the believers had, the church there had sent Epaphroditus to them. And he had arrived, in a sense, with two things. He had arrived with a gift of financial gift, just to help Paul, um, from, as he says elsewhere, from very poor people, who in one sense you'd think couldn't afford this, but they gave him this great gift. And he brought himself. He came to Paul, as it were, to say, I'm at your service, what can I do for you? Here I am. Um, This this was deeply moving to Paul. And, And I can't help but think, about the time I was in India, I went over a couple times to teach pastors for a week. And one time I was over in eastern India, in the Presbyterian Church of India, and they were having their general assembly. And uh, at one point in their, their service of the general assembly, they called me up to the front. And I didn't know what was going on. And they said, we appreciate your ministry to us. We want to give our general assembly offering to you. Now, you talk about the widow's might. Now, these were incredibly poor Christians. And they're giving their offering to me. And my first thought, my, almost just my initial thought was, I can't accept this. How, how could I possibly accept this? And my second thought, fortunately, was, but if you don't accept it, you're really going to insult them. <laughs> so I did accept it. 
And I brought it home and I gave it to our deacon's fund. I thought that was a, an appropriate use of their money. But, but I can't think about that without being deeply moved by their kindness and giving out of their poverty. And something like that, I think, is what Paul is expressing toward these Philippians. And, and Epaphroditus, on top of that, um, remember, you, in those days, you didn't get on a plane in Philippi after breakfast and land in Rome for lunch. You didn't do that. It took several weeks of rather difficult travel uh, to get from, from Philippi to Rome. And, as if that were not enough, there's a report that along the way Epaphroditus had fallen ill. And, uh, but he kept doggedly going to Rome, and God had mercy on him and, and spared him. I say this because in this text, Paul emphasizes the idea of fellowship, koinonia, sharing, partnership. And it's just that combination of, 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 of love, of sacrifice, of giving, of service, um, all in kind of a warm way. And I ask you, is that what you see in your church community? And I'd ask you to think about that as we, as we work our way through the text. I think that's intended to be normal Christianity, not some kind of special Christianity, but, but pretty normal stuff. Um, is that what you see? Well, as Paul responds to these Philippians, let me uh, suggest under three headings to you some things to chew on. First of all, let's consider Paul's gratitude. I've mentioned it. Let's consider it a little more in depth. Then let's consider Paul's confidence. That is to say, Paul's confidence that God will continue and complete the work of salvation in them. And then thirdly, let's consider Paul's affection to them, which he says, strikingly, is with all the affection of Christ Jesus. What a deep thought that is. Well, let's consider then first... Paul's gratitude. I've read the verses, but let's hear them again. Verses 3 and 4. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Paul says, every time I think about you, I get a smile on my face. Every time I think about you, I get a smile in my heart. Now, everyone I hope has people in their lives that are like that. I have my dear wife with me. I hardly ever think about her. I don't smile. Grandchildren, I think the same way. My own kids, of course, and you have people like that as well. But that ought to be true of our way, of our view of our local church as well. And I emphasize the locality. This is to the Philippians, these people in this place. The people around you this morning, and some of the people I heard aren't here this morning, they ought to bring a smile to your face. They ought to bring a smile to your heart, do they? And, and, and what is it? It's, he's thankful for, verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. They have been supporting him and serving him and with him in his ministry of spreading the gospel um, versus a hostile paganism. And I think that made it even more sweet that he had people who knew him, loved him, and stood with him 
And if you want to just put your finger in Acts 16, let me make a couple of references to Acts chapter 16, because this is the foundation of the, um, of the Philippian church. As to the paganism, in verse 16 of Acts 16, now it happened, as we went to prayer, Luke is using the eyewitness uh, first person here, that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. And I'm not... I won't go into detail about that, but Paul casts the demon out of her, and her masters get mad at her, because not only was there a pagan worldview in which this fortune-telling was taken very seriously, but there was good money in it. And so when she had been changed, uh, these masters were, were very uh, angry with Paul and Silas and got them ended up thrown into prison, where they ended up singing his in prison, you know that that well-known story. Um, and, and, you know, I think we can relate to that because God in his providence is allowing the heat to be turned up in our Western civilization against Christians and against Christianity. And so here we have it. I like to think, and I don't know if this is true, I kind of hope, that that slave girl became a Christian. I don't know if she did. The text doesn't say that. Maybe she didn't. Um, but I hope she was one of the ones that Paul had in mind when he was writing that letter. But I know some people he did have in mind when he was writing that letter. Verses 14 and 15, we hear about this would have been the first convert to Christ in Europe. Think about that. Paul had the Macedonian call, come over to help us. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So she was a, a God-fearer, probably a Gentile God-fearer who had attached herself to the Jewish religion. They were worshipping down by the river because there weren't enough Jews in Philippi to have a quorum, to have a synagogue. But, but here's this wonderful work of grace. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. You know, if you sit here this morning, and I know many, perhaps all of you, sit here as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, just a reminder to you, it wasn't because you were so clever or smart. It's because at some point, somehow, somewhere, maybe as a covenant child or maybe as an adult, the Lord opened your heart. Thanks be to God. And Paul thinks with thanksgiving of someone like Lydia. And then immediately the fruitfulness in her life. And when she and her household were baptized, that's one thing, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So immediately, without a seminar on hospitality or a lecture on hospitality or anything like that, she just opens her home and says, come on, I want to minister, I want to serve. Um, what a, and, and we see that replicated in the Philippian church, this reception of grace and then service. Service always flowing from that sense of grace. And then, finally, just to, to note the, the, the well-known, more well-known, the Philippian jailer. And they're singing hymns, and there's an earthquake, and uh, this pagan jailer, um, he, he asks that famous question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Oh, that we would pray that there would be many people around us who might be asking that or a similar question. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What must I do to be saved? I'm interested in that. Um, and their answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. So, to the church in Philippi, it helps me to think of Paul writing with those particular people in mind. 
There's Lydia in the congregation. There's this Philippian jailer, maybe the slave girl, and many others who'd been saved as well. It's always particular people in a particular place. And Paul says, I can't think of you without rejoicing. I'm grateful for the Lord's work in you, and I'm grateful for the fruit of that work, your response and labor of love. Are we grateful? I know we can all rub each other the wrong way. That's true in every church. Always has been, always will be. We're sinners. Sinners live together. Sparks are going to fly. Absolutely true. But are we grateful? Are we still thankful that the Lord has opened the hearts of the people sitting around you and they're growing in grace and they are your brothers and sisters in this Christian life? Paul's gratitude. Second in the second place, I want you to consider Paul's confidence. Not, not in the Philippians, <laughs> but in the Lord's work in the Philippians. Verses 6 and 7. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. There's there's that idea of partaking again. That reality of sharing grace together. So Paul rejoices that God has begun a good work in you. He saw that rather dramatically in Lydia, rather dramatically in the Philippian jailer, and perhaps not so dramatically. We see that also in covenant children who grow up My own kids would say, I don't ever remember a day I didn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's just as real and wonderful of a work of God. And he sees the fruits of God's work in them, the fruits of grace, that you've stood with me in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul was very very controversial. He was not um, popular with the powers that be. So let me tell you, it took some courage to stand with him. It took some real courage to stand with him. Billy Sunday was an old-time fundamentalist evangelist, and I probably wouldn't want to preach the way he did, but he was attacked by the liberals and unbelievers of his day. And Jay Gresson Machen, who was about as opposite of Billy Sunday as you could get, Machen said, I like Billy Sunday for the enemies he has. See, there, there was a core in which they shared in faith in the gospel and stood together with each other. And Paul is saying, I'm so thankful to, uh, for God's work in you that in my chains you weren't ashamed of them and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you're with me. We both have the same desire and that's to preach the gospel. That's to see the gospel furthered, to see the gospel spread, to see people converted, to see God glorified and the church built up. As Paul will say later in chapter 2, very well-known words, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but with my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And the wonderful thing about Paul's confidence, and he knows these people in Philippi are sinners, just like he is, but he has the absolute confidence Treasure these wonderful words. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it, or perhaps better, carry it on, or bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's the idea. 
God who has begun this good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ. I, I was converted in a tradition where um, they did not teach the, uh, the assurance of salvation or the perseverance of the saints. And the idea was kind of, you know, you better keep your feet to the fire because you could lose this. And, and I think the intent was to motivate us, but I think in the long run what that does, it just kind of breaks you down if you're sincere. Because you know you don't live up to it. You know if it depends on you, you're not going to make it. I'm not going to make it if left to me. Do you think you're going to make it if left to you? Are you going to persevere? No, only if God's work is work in you. How much more motivating is it that our Heavenly Father who knows our sins and our weaknesses, he is going to stick with it and he is going to bring this work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul believed that. And Paul believed what our Lord Jesus Christ said, for example, in John chapter 10 and verse 28. I love this, speaking as the good shepherd. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I think that's good news. It is, it is one of the perfections of our God that he always begins what is good, and he always completes what he begins. He always finishes what he starts. In contrast to me, for example. If you came to my house, you'd see a lot of books. A lot of pastors have a lot of books, and, and sometimes people have asked me, have you read all those? And my clever answer is, some of them twice. And that's true. Notice I didn't say I read them all of them. I said, some of them twice, and that's perfectly true. The complete story would be, some of them I started and never finished. I got bored, I got distracted, I started reading a different book, whatever it is. But I suspect, even if you're not a reader, I have a feeling you've got a hobby or a project somewhere stuck somewhere in your life you you never finished. Just kind of who we are. We tend not to perfectly finish what we start, though we start with great aspirations. How wonderful that we have a God who's not like that, who finishes what he starts, who always stays with it and brings it safely and completely and perfectly to the end. Do you rejoice in that? And I think that can help us love and be patient with other people. Sometimes we can see people's, other people's sins more clearly than we can see our own. Let's face it, that's true. But it's so helpful to remember that God is going to bring to completion the work he's begun in that imperfect, struggling sinner. Don't you ever forget that. He will finish what he starts. So we see something of, the, of, of God's uh, through Paul here, Paul's, um, Paul's gratitude, uh, Paul's confidence that God will bring to completion what he started. And uh, in fact, just to, to, just to hammer that point and give you something to think about later, just to close that point. In Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, which is the chapter on um, uh, assurance, and, or, or rather perseverance, perseverance and assurance, Um, I just want to read the first paragraph. And uh, this is just a wonderful summary, I think, of the Bible's teaching. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, okay, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those whom God has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, now listen, can neither totally nor finally fall away 
from the state of grace, acknowledges we're going to struggle, we're going to slip back at times, we're going to be up and down, yes, 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 but can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Those are just wonderful words, and it's a biblical truth. And as much as you struggle, and as mess as of a mess and a sinner you feel at times, Christian, take heart from these words. You shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Thanks be to God. Well, finally, I just want to comment on Paul's affection, which he says, I, I long for you all with the affection of, of Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for God is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's interesting that, that he testifies to his affection for them so strongly. That strikes me. It's as if he's in court and his affections are on trial. And he says, I call God as my witness that I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Why does, it, why does he put it that way? Well, I think in a sense his affections were on trial. Because we know that in Philippi, as, as, as in every age of the church, there were preachers who were less than sincere about it, whose, whose affection was, was not sincere, as he will mention in verse 15, for example. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. So there are some who don't have the greatest motives when they're preaching the gospel. But I'm glad for that if the gospel's preached. But, but, but he says, but I want, God, I want God to be my witness that my affection for you is sincere. It's really from the heart. I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this to lord it over you. I'm not in it to take advantage of you or to build myself up. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says... I long for you because obviously he was separated from them. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Absence is the place where we, 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 we realize our funds for believers in that, that distance. But that word affection, I long for you with the inward parts. That's a biblical way of talking about sincerity. I long for you with the inward parts of Jesus Christ. As the old King James puts it, I long for you with the bowels of Christ. And to us that sounds kind of crude and kind of rough. But, but it's talking about from the depths of our inner being, man and woman, that's how much I long for you. My friend, as a Christian, do you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you with great affection? You're not a number. You're not a statistical number. Nor even are we merely names. As wonderful as that is, our names are in the book of life. Um, it's, not, it's not just that. It's that he loves us with a deep affection. And you see that in the Gospels just about on every page. Just to remind ourselves of this. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 41, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, a leper comes to him and kneels before him. Jesus, 
moved with compassion from the depths of his being, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing to be cleansed. And may I remind you, this leper was not outwardly attractive. He really had nothing to offer Jesus. It wasn't like, oh, I want him on my team. No, he was an outcast. He was unclean. Jesus had great affection for him. The poor widow of Nain, I won't turn to it, but Jesus, the same phrase is used, that Jesus looked upon her with with great affection, with great compassion from his inner being. Um, Jesus weeps at the grave of Lazarus, does he not? Um, And and all in fulfillment of what God even began to reveal in the Old Testament, Lamentations chapter 3. His affection for us, his mercies are new every day. So I say to you that we should have a similar affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ because of Christ's affection for us. It's not something we can work up on our own. We love because he first loved us. We should have affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ because of his deep affection for us. And it would be better to, 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 to begin our consideration of this simply by saying how poorly we do this and how cold our hearts can be and how critical our hearts can be and how distant we can be from other believers. We ought to just tell the Lord what he already knows. Lord, I am lousy at this. I don't have the affection for other believers that I really would like to have. So let me close with four, I think, biblical applications of how we might grow in this. First of all, no surprise, we ought to pray about it. Father, open the eyes of my heart so that I can see other believers the way you do. That kind of prayer, open my heart up. Help me to appreciate that I might approximate something of your love and affection for other believers. Put that on your prayer list. Second, I think there's nothing quite that bonds us together as when we serve together. So, don't be an armchair Christian. I really like those, those stories like, you know, band of brothers, you know, it's kind of a military thing, and the, the camaraderie that, that, that grew because they were fighting together. Um, well, we're fighting together uh, in this world with brothers and sisters. But if we just sit on the sidelines all the time and just sort of look and watch, but never roll up our sleeves and serve in some way alongside brothers and sisters, we're going to stay distant. We just are. But you get in with someone and you serve alongside of them. You have a bond. You have a commonality. You begin to have stories you can swap with each other. You begin to have connections with each other. And I think that is, that is so biblical as we see that we're encouraged to use the gifts and graces that God has given us for the sake of others. A third, and this is not exactly serving together, Again, we stand there and our affections maybe are not what they should be, so, so where do we start? I think feelings of love often follow actions of love. And so I think the best thing to do is not wait around until we feel affection. I think it's better to start acting in loving ways, and I think affection will follow. And I think there are plenty of indications in Scripture that that's the case, Um, the Lord Jesus encourages his disciples to wash one another's feet. I don't think he meant that literally. I think he meant humble service toward one another. 
But that's one of the lesser attractive things I can think of, kind of washing someone else's feet. But Jesus said, how does he close that? He says, you're blessed if you know these things, if you do them, if you act on them. I remember a sister in Christ at at the Coventry Church uh, some years ago, and she was telling me that she really had a hard time with another sister in the church. They were both young moms at the time. She just had a hard time, some attitudes and things that just weren't right. And she said, I didn't like that, and I wanted to have a better attitude, she said, so I decided that I would just do something for her. Um, so she called her up and she said, can I watch your kids some morning? And of course, every young mom is glad to have someone watch their kids for a morning so she can do something else, and, and so she did. And she said, Pastor, you know, almost as soon as I did that, my feelings started to change. My hardness started to go away. And I think that's exactly what so often happens. When we act in love, then the feelings start to come back. And finally, just another application of this. Maybe this is most important of all. How do we grow in our affection for other believers We need to regularly soak ourselves in the reality of the affection of our Savior for us. We need to do that daily and even hourly and realize his great affection toward us. And the more that kind of seeps into these kind of cold, you know, modern New England hearts, (laughs) the more our hearts will be warmed and begin to be warmed and be more like the affection of our Savior. And why worry about this? Why worry about it? Because God is glorified. By this all will know that you're my disciples, not because you have a spiffy evangelism program, but Jesus says, if you love one another. Who loves one another nowadays? It's doggy dog, isn't it? Absolutely. What an amazing thing for people to come to a church. Those, those people actually seem to love each other. They don't seem to want to be taking advantage of each other or you know, just in it for the money or anything like that. Uh, What a tremendous witness to Christ that is. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, we ought regularly to soak our souls in that. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge to you that we are far short in our affection for other believers, and how we need your help. May we appreciate, even as we come to the Lord's table, your great sacrifice for us, that we might, in our hearts, sacrifice for others and love in some way approximating your love for us pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond as we will sing um, from the book of Psalms. We're singing Psalm 101.